This is an ABC podcast. Look, I know I'm beginning to get a reputation for this kind of statement, but welcome to what may really be the last ever episode of The Minefield, because I fear that we have entered the, well, the end of days, frankly. There's a pandemic, we're having earthquakes, uh, there are now daily protests on the streets of Melbourne involving the construction industry. It's just all falling apart. By the time you listen to this, I'm sure a plague of locusts will have descended somewhere. <laughs> it is in that context that we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Although given the urgency of the times, I'm beginning to realise how pointless and frivolous these conversations really are when someone should just be figuring out how to deal with the locust thing. Anyway, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Oh, I, I don't, you know, I, everyone's making end of time jokes at the moment. Like the, my phone just exploded with them when the earthquake really? hit. But I don't think they're a joke. Like I, th- I think there's a, there's a tone of seriousness to all of this and it is fascinating to watch like the, all the tension that has been held, all the things that have been held together with that tension over the past couple of years are just falling apart completely. And I don't, I, I don't know what happens from here. I don't know what the great unravelling finally looks like. But it does feel like we're in the start of it. And the only contribution we can really make is to to chat about it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, yes, uh, something about playing a violin while the city around one burns yeah. is... Um, yeah. Although, at the same time, maybe not. As in I guess, maybe, you know, maybe not fiddling while it burns or maybe it's not burning? Uh, no, it almost certainly is burning, but it may well be that the solution is a lot kind of simpler, a lot closer to the ground than we might think. Oh. Look, I um, uh, obviously I, I don't live in Melbourne, but I have a deep emotional attachment. Uh, you, Waleed, and your wonderful family are there. My son, my oldest son, lives in Melbourne. Uh, when I uh, heard that there had been a substantial earthquake, having lived through several myself, I don't know. The the first response that came to mind was, yeah, yeah, that'd be about right. <laughs> Do you know what was interesting uh, yeah. was the way it went up the eastern seaboard, more or less just to lock down areas. Oh, <laughs> Did you notice that? Like it got as far as the ACT. I think parts of Sydney uh, felt it. It was. It's just really interesting. Well, it couldn't the happen in WA or Queensland, yeah. could it? Yeah, it's true. No, <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, but it is. It is curious, and I think it's an interesting even parallel. Uh, or parable, that so many of the things that we take for granted, like the air around us, like our ability to move, to be able to associate, to be able to socialize, uh, to be able to do things as simple as going to work and, say, going to uh, church or a mosque or synagogue, so many of the things we simply take for granted, these are the very things that have been upended. But at least you you know pound your foot on the ground a few times and say, well, at least I can be sure that I'm standing on something solid, and then something <laughs> like this happens. But it's, um, look... The one thing, by the way, that you left out of your mm. uh, series of uh, social uh, and non-social plagues uh, was um, protesters being met by extremely heavy, heavily armed riot police, which is another, you know, again, I, I, I understand entirely that when met with a degree of aggression and frustration and despair, uh, that the the safety of those who have been commissioned by society 
to try to hold down forms of order, that those things are paramount. But I think it's also one of those instances, isn't it? And we've seen this repeatedly in the United States over the last 15 years, that the way that one responds to a crisis, to a moment of deep frustration, despair, anger, aggression, the way that one responds can also, can either uh, rapidly diffuse tensions or they can raise the stakes almost immediately. Um, I'm not saying that riot police are necessarily doing the wrong thing or that the riot gear no, but it's the aesthetic, or the militarized it? vehicle. Yeah, it is the aesthetic. But again, while we're on the topic of parables, I wonder if that's not also kind of parabolic. That Maybe the we'll way that we respond to crises as they're unfolding can either have the effect of helping those crises along, of letting them be, of letting them find their own solutions, of letting them find solutions that are closer to the ground, maybe more organic in a kind of less pressured way, or they can escalate things. And I, I've been thinking a lot, Waleed, about vaccine mandates. About which, which we should say is one of the issues at the heart of those protests. Um, it is. In the construction industry yeah. in Melbourne, yeah. And I, uh, I guess we, we talked about this briefly off air. It's probably, you know, just as well that we mention it now. One of the things that we talked about during that age of plebiscites and referenda, ranging from the Brexit referendum through to the same-sex marriage plebiscite, was that there, there are certain debates, there are certain disagreements where people aren't quite sure what they think about something. Or maybe they're kind of sure about what they think about something, but they haven't been forced to make a decision quite yet. And many times the way that people think about, for instance, UK's status with respect to the European Union or the way that people think about same-sex marriage, sometimes these things are kind of informal. They're vague. They might have a kind of visceral distaste for something, but because they haven't been put on the spot, because they haven't been backed into a corner and made to make a decision about something, it means that there are all sorts of closer-to-home influences. I don't know if you recall, Waleed, but we talked to Martha Nussbaum years ago now during debates that were leading up to the Supreme Court decision in the United States concerning same-sex marriage. And she was pointing out to us that one of the most decisive factors that had brought people to the point where they were willing to accept same-sex couples within the bonds of or within the definition of marriage was knowing same-sex couples themselves or having children who themselves are gay or lesbian. And, and there's something about allowing these things to percolate at a very kind of informal level that can sometimes be morally transformative. It can allow deep problems to achieve solutions that are best left informal or best left kind of dynamic and grassroots. But as soon as you escalate things to a point of confrontation, do this or else, vote on this, make your mind up, then sometimes... Problems are created, escalations are occasioned, and battle lines are formed that may well not have been formed otherwise. And again, I, I just wonder, maybe you don't see any merit in this, but I wonder if something similar isn't happening in forcing people to take positions, forcing people to take sides on issues that maybe can best be left for local communities, for local workplaces, even for things like unions 
to work their way through to the end of and not be folded up into what it now seems to be, which is vaccines are just one more plank, one more form of artillery in our never-ending culture war. Okay, so let's take the example of the protests in Melbourne from the construction industry or within the construction industry. These are, at least on the surface, occasioned by a policy of mandatory vaccination that was implemented at the recommendation of the state's chief health officer following significant levels of transmission from the construction industry, which has had really the benefit and the privilege of being allowed to stay open throughout all of Melbourne's lockdowns, unlike Mm, actually in Sydney where it was shut down briefly. Yeah. You then see that sort of um, mandatory vaccination policy trigger these protests and the government responds, although it insists not just to the protests, but to a broader sort of non-compliance with COVID safe plans by shutting down the industry for two weeks. I guess it could be longer. We know with coronavirus restrictions that the the time horizons on them are only ever really provisional. So who knows? Mm. What do you think is the breakdown there? Like how, how would you apply the principle that you've articulated to to that example and specifically decisions that have to be made and then turned into sort of black and white rules yeah. via a chief health officer who's trying to manage an outbreak that in Melbourne, it seems probably a bit unlike Sydney, is still in the phase of growing. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I realise that, I mean, one of the things we do on this show is we, I mean, we hope we don't, but sometimes we do fall into the trap of talking cheaply. I certainly don't want to be talking cheaply. Um, it is important, the point that you made, that the Melbourne construction industry was, or the Victorian construction industry, really was given the benefit of the doubt for a long period of time, not least because so much of the work is being done outdoors. Um, but the review that was conducted, and I think the findings, what was it last week, well, late, early last week, middle of last week, was that there was more than 50% non-compliance with the, uh, with the COVID-safe obligations that were being imposed on the industry. I think what's important to point out, though, is that the unions, specifically the CFMEU and the ACTU, have by and large resisted vaccine mandates among workforces and specifically among the construction industry because they were finding that other forms of, it's not even soft coercion, other forms of encouragement and urging were leading to quite a good rate of take-up of vaccines across unions. Some of those are, include uh, strong messages appealing to, if you like, some of the central virtues at the heart of the union movement, namely solidarity. Mm. Um, this is something that we do in solidarity with our fellow workers, not just the workers we work alongside, uh, but also those in the hospital who would need to care for us um, at that moment when, uh, due to our bad behavior, we lead to an overwhelming of the uh, of, yes, which is the point that the of, nurses' union made. Exactly right. right a very, yeah. very, very powerful, and I think a morally compelling argument. But the other two things that were that were working uh, by all reports quite spectacularly, uh, one was the urging of or the provision of, in many sectors, vaccine-related pay. So if – or leave, vaccine-related leave. So if, for instance, you needed to take time off work in order to get a vaccine, that was available to you. If you felt sick afterwards, then uh, then that leave was also granted to you. But also the possibility of provision of vaccines uh, on-site or near-site. Now, those are the kinds of things, along with the kind of uh, – along with, if you like, the fraternal forms of coercion that take place within any close-knit group 
Um, those are the kinds of things that seem to have been working very, very nicely up to date. As soon as you then impose a mandate, and, and I don't find necessarily fault with the mandate, but it seems to me that that has taken something which seemed to have been bubbling along quite nicely, and it's now forced it to a point of confrontation where whether this is being hijacked by other interest groups or whatever, it's now creating or consolidating battle lines where the other forms of, say, softer urging uh, may well have been – more may well have been the yeah. better – and in fact, not just in the long term, but even the short term. So it simply may have been more effective. There are a couple of strands to that though. One is that the way, I think what you're describing is really important. But I think there's a conflation that going on there that's worth teasing out and that is that hmm. there's more or less an equation there with the construction in, of the construction industry with the union. And they're hmm. very different things because That's true. Absolutely right. so much of the construction industry is not unionised now and in fact belongs more to the realm of small business, um, yep. sole traders, entrepreneurs, etc. And, you know, this takes us back into Howard ba Howard's Battler's territory and sort of the real transformation of the construction industry into small business operations um, over a long period of time. And so while the CFMEU remains a significant player and, you know, the very big work sites are overwhelmingly um, CFMEU work sites. It's not really true to say that that's an accurate picture of the industry as a whole. And so there's a, what I what I think is interesting to play with there, and maybe we shouldn't play with it on this show because we'll get, end up getting lost down this alleyway. But to what extent is the fact that it's become a less unionised workplace part of the story mm. as to what makes appeals to solidarity less compelling? I yeah, mean, a lot of the because what's interesting about the the protest is they are build as freedom protests, hmm. which is a different sort of thing. Like when vaccination first started emerging in, what was it, probably the 19th century and, and working class populations resisted vaccination back then, it was part of a class solidarity. Hmm. Um, now this is all ancient history now, but, and it's, it's very different to anti-vax sentiment now, I think. But like the idea was by talking about vaccination, you, you, it's just another way of making the working class seem like vermin. Um, you know, some kind of pestilence that, that need to be inoculated, right? In other words, it was about one's belonging to the working class that one reached in a, a position of being suspicious of vaccination. Now, the anti-vax position, or at least the resistance to the mandate, is one of freedom, which is not really a union narrative, is it? No, it's not. No, it's not. It's more of a sort of, um, it's, a, it's a libertarian narrative. It's more of a, mm -hmm. an American-style narrative. And the fact that that is so present within the construction industry, even allowing for the infiltration of, you know, conspiracy theorists and the far right and all that sort of stuff, even allowing for that, the fact that that's present in significant enough numbers in the construction industry is really interesting, I think. And, and I, I think just point out, tell us. Yeah, go on. Can I just point out two really quick things, though? One of the, one of the reasons I think the union can't quite be excluded from the argument too prematurely is that one of the things that unions do have to keep in mind, do have to factor into their deliberations, do have to factor into the advice and the recommendations that they then give, is the fact that they are a highly representative body. Now, what the, that doesn't mean that they represent all workers, far from. But becoming but less mean, so, isn't that the point? Yes, and they are becoming less so. But when I say representative, I mean there aren't voices they can simply out of hand exclude. Yeah. In other words, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if there is a strong degree of vaccine hesitant or vaccine suspicious sentiment among workers, that's something that needs to be taken into account. There, there can't simply be that top down, this is the union position. So to, to the extent that unions remain 
highly deliberative bodies. I think that's significant. I think the other thing that's worth pointing out here, Waleed, and this goes, I think, right to right to the issue that you raised, uh, that this isn't a solidarity message, that this is a freedom message. I mean, we are seeing, of course, the importation of insignias, of symbols from elsewhere. Mm. I couldn't quite believe when I saw, for instance, signs and flags with a coiled-up snake from that's often sort of emblazoned on American, uh, on uh, uh, American protest placards, especially in the South, don't tread on me, as if they're kind of individual liberties mm. uh, that are being imposed on. But I think one of the things that is interesting, and this is this maybe gets us closer to the heart of the conversation at hand, is that something that is being expressed here may well have a little bit more in common with what you originally laid out about the traditional working class suspicion surrounding vaccines, that the need for the working class to work for workers to be vaccinated implies a degree of taint, a kind of dirtiness, a sort of a filthiness or a vermin-like quality. Mm. I mean, I, I, I have zero tolerance for these kinds of messages but it has I, been. I, I have lo- more tolerance for them in the nineteenth century. I think. Well, 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 yes, but but hang on. Uh, but but the fact that we've been seeing, for instance, in Sydney, recently in Brisbane, yeah. even some cases in Melbourne, people wearing, for instance, yellow stars of David, mm. saying yeah. that the unvaccinated are the new Juden. Yeah. The the taking upon oneself the status of the persecuted few. I mean, there's something morally appalling about that. There's something historically oblivious about that. There's a kind of false heroism that I think is being clutched there that I I just don't think uh, those protesting necessarily have access to or have an entitlement to. However, doesn't it also point to the sense that for many of those who are protesting, it's not just an American-style libertarianism that they're clutching or kind of false or overinflated presumption of freedom, but it's also the sense of being needlessly, unnecessarily, publicly ridiculed, ostracized, humiliated. And to that extent, I think the moralized messages on the part of the vaccinated, quote-unquote, uh, and the way in which vaccination has been uh, given its own degree of a kind of moral grandstanding and that those who are then vaccinated then are taking upon themselves increasingly a kind of co- contemptuous disdain for those who have not been. I think there's something, even though the messages are wrong, I think there is a sentiment beneath it that may well be be worth giving moral attention no, to. No, I think that's really important. That so way. basically you've articulated the second thread I wanted to pull. Oh, yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm glad that's that's good. Because what, what we're really talking about there is that the minute you reach, sorry, if you instinctively reach for the sort of um, the hard power response to these things, what you usually end up doing is is getting rid of the tool of persuasion and instead (laughs) precipitating a culture war. Yeah, there you go. Nicely said. Now, I think there's an argument about the extent to which we're actually doing that in Australia. I think it's been really interesting, actually. I I would even go so far, I think, as to say admirable, the extent to which governments have not reached for that. We haven't seen widespread resort to vaccination mandates. We've seen... Um, selected industries, and I think most of those industries have been 
eminently sensible industries to choose, you know, healthcare professionals, aged care, things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even those have been introduced relatively late. So it wasn't like it was right from the very start. In fact, you could criticise them for not having introduced them earlier. Um, The construction industry in Melbourne is probably the first time we've, probably the first borderline case, I guess you would say. But even then Mm. it's in response to a number of outbreaks that have been precipitated. In other words, I don't know the governments have been particularly, like especially knee-jerk on this. I agree. And I don't think, you know, at every opportunity they've reiterated the importance of personal choice while saying there will be privileges for those, mm, or at mm. least, you know, positive incentives as opposed to negative incentives. So I'd say the but governments think, well, have been relatively restrained in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, 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 I agree, Walid. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think one of the really important reasons why they were restrained is that access to vaccines for until very, very, very recently was limited. And I think there would have been something de facto unjust about the conferring of privileges or the imposition of penalties on those who either were vaccinated in the case of privileges or not vaccinated in the case of penalties because because there simply wasn't the appropriate. So look, I'm I'm with you. Okay, yeah. but can I just push past that? Because we've discussed Please. that actually on a previous episode about vaccine incentives. And yes, yeah. I think that's right. But I think what's happened is below the surface of the political positioning, a culture war has slowly been brewing largely on social media mm. and then sort of infiltrating people's personal lives. And mm. so I, I measure this only in an informal anecdotal way by the number of people I run into who confess to me stories of family members that they can no longer speak to, for example. Mm. This sort of keeps coming up. That it's, it's the kind of language you would hear in America when Donald Trump was elected about my cousin or my uncle or whatever is a Trump supporter and I just cannot speak to them about politics anymore. The moral gulf between us is unbridgeable. Yes, that's, that's yeah. a perfect way of distilling it. Mm. And that I think is building more and more and more. And then every now and again you get a little case study that I think throws this into fairly sharp relief. And it brings together all the themes we're talking about. One of the themes I think you've identified there is an alienation from mainstream institutions and institutions of orthodoxy, if you like. So that's politics, that's media, it can even be science. We're starting to see that. And the little example that popped up on my radar a couple of weeks ago was the question of, do you have unvaccinated people? Do you allow unvaccinated people in religious gatherings? Mm. Which I think is a fascinating one because... I would argue, and we have data on this in America, not in Australia, but that among religious communities, hesitancy towards the COVID vaccine is higher than on average. Now, you have to be very careful extrapolating from American religiosity to Australian religiosity because they're very different Mm. things. But it raises really interesting questions, doesn't it, about precisely what kinds of privileges slash rights are we prepared to take away from the unvaccinated? How much can we leave to the sort of informal workings of social bonds and the persuasion that happens within them and how much can't we? Because the minute you draw lines, you do precipitate more than just the policy line itself, right? You you precipitate all kinds of social aftershocks to use a metaphor that I probably shouldn't in the aftermath of an earthquake. <laughs> you, see, you see what I mean? I think it's yeah. a really fascinating example for us to maybe think about as part of a broader set of principles that might apply here. We do yeah, need to get to a guest. Is there anything you want to say before we get there? Look, simply, I mean, again, to just return to a theme that we've touched on a few times, so I'll just urge our listeners to go back. Even even in the midst of delicately balanced incentives and disincentives, I think one of the things that what Arvishai Margali calls a decent society does 
is it's always wary that disincentives never tip over into humiliation. Mm. And it's it's not even a matter of kind of 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 things being being ineffective uh, by pushing too hard, by making disincentives or even punishments too strong. It's not even that these things are counterproductive in some way. But in a real way, it takes the very forms of soft social pressure, which are at the heart of any real moral transformation or any social transformation. And it then makes that an opportunity, a stage, a platform, a theater of exclusion. I think you and I have both then witnessed a number of times a kind of performative disdain being worked out on public platforms, on television mm-hmm. shows, in public conversations where, you know, it's almost people taking turns, uh, pointing fingers at, making fun of the unvaccinated. Um, and I think there's there's something there that's both beneath us, that's counterproductive, yes, but also runs into very, very grave moral territory. This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now. But you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice. So this is a bit of a funny story. The guest that we have, we love her very much. She's a great friend of this show. Um, she's a wonderful moral philosopher and theologian. She is the leader of a religious community in Canberra. Um, we kind of had religious gatherings a little bit closer to the center of the topic that we wanted to discuss this week. And then all sorts of other things have overwhelmed us. But we really thought that we wanted to stick with Sarah. Uh, to hopefully so that she can help us feel our way to the end of what really are some very, very delicate moral, philosophical, even theological straits. Sarah Bachelard is the founder and leader of the Benedictus Contemplative Church in Canberra. She is a very fine, extraordinarily subtle moral philosopher. She's a fellow at the Australian Catholic University. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the minefield and for helping us out with this topic. Thank you. Although, <laughs> as you say, the topic's moved and I feel less and less adequate to it. <laughs> well, well, no. So let's, let, let's not talk about the inner workings of the Australian Union movement. Uh, let's, <laughs> let, let's leave that maybe to the side for, for a moment. But I think one of the reasons, and I'm so glad that Waleed brought up the question of religious gatherings and the possibility, the likelihood, the uh, well, in some cases, maybe likelihood of the exclusion of those who are vaccinated under the New South Wales and Victoria uh, roadmaps out of lockdown. It is interesting that for New South Wales, there is the current conditions are even under 80 percent double dose vaccination religious services, religious gatherings are going to be available only to the vaccinated for, for the time being, not for the indefinite. Uh, in Melbourne, it's, it's very interesting, actually, that once 80 percent, sorry, once 70 percent is reached, outdoor gatherings, uh, religious gatherings become foreseeable, become possible. Under 80 percent double dose, there are, there's the possibility of indoor gatherings, but then there's a lower capacity limit if those who are unvaccinated are then present in those religious gatherings. There's some really interesting dynamics that are, that are going on there. Um, there have been a number of religious leaders, uh, theological ethicists who have pointed out that there is something about this, especially for Christian churches, that goes deeply against the grain, the exclusion of those from religious gatherings. There have been others who have said that, yes, that's true, but this is a public health emergency after all. So if this is a permanent thing, it's something that churches would really have no 
alternative but to oppose, but as a temporary measure until a certain threshold is reached, maybe it's something that needs to be countenanced. Just sticking with this before we move on from religious gatherings, how are you feeling your way through this? What's your, what's your, what's your read on both the, the ethical and, say, the liturgical limits of these kinds of restrictions? Mm. Well, as with the first part of the conversation, there are so many threads to it, aren't there? And it's it's very kind of a whole range of different um, different themes, different issues that need to be teased out. I think. I guess some of the things that I'm holding as I'm feeling my way, as you put it, um, one is yes, the need to take seriously. Uh, the public health issues and the health of all who attend a gathering. There's also the issue of principle of, of non-exclusion and um, and I, I really take the point that you were raising earlier about this, this real danger of moral high ground, um, which actually you can see on, in a sense, both sides of the divide. There's a sense in which in terms of the, the culture war, it, when it's kind of degenerated to that point, part of what you can see is both sides wanting to claim a high moral ground for their their view. And that would be something that if that were to take hold, that form of thinking within a religious community, I think, would be a problem in itself, you know, independently of the issue of vaccination or not. So that would be a thread that you'd want to be teasing out with the community, I think. Um, can I just can, I guess can I just yeah. mention one one very brief thing though, Sarah? Just to, it's something I meant to say before, and I think it's probably worthwhile mentioning now. Even if even if those who have not yet received a vaccine do experience expressions of those who are strongly pro-vaccination, even if they do experience that as a form of contempt or disdain, as if others are looking down upon them, it may well be that it's not intended as a form of contempt or disdain. But it may well be as many places that are in this kind of never-ending, interminable cycle of lockdown, it may actually be an expression of exasperation, of exhaustion, a kind of longing for things to come back to normal and for things that are so highly valued, like the kind of liturgical uh, communality that one receives, uh, one experiences within religious gatherings. It may well be an expression of exhaustion than it is contempt. But I think this is where where we need to be all the more on our guard, <laughs> lest these things that need not necessarily have been intended to be communicated, if that, in fact, is the message that's received. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think exhaustion is a big part of it. And, and again, in a sense, everywhere, every, everyone's sick of it. You know? and, and I guess people have different ways of wanting to resolve the tension of it. I think the point that also you were discussing earlier about this kind of dynamic between a kind of uh, an attempt to make a really hard response, which again is totally understandable in various circumstances, but also then leaving open the room for a kind of more persuasive or I would even say kind of relational response. So how do we, part of it's how do we, how do we stay in relationship with each other as we navigate our way through this uh, rather than, you know, risking falling into two camps that just can't talk to each other anymore. So this is a really good question, Sarah, and I am instinctively attracted to the idea 
that whatever we do, it must be relational. Mm. However, one of the problems that we have here is that it's very hard to make it relational where A, the media through which we have these conversations is sort of inimical to relationality. Mm. But also there's just about no epistemological overlap here. <laughs> that, like that's, that seems to me, that's the theme that emerges again and again and again when I talk to people who are having these conversations with their friends or people in their community who are just on the other side of the divide. It's that mm. there is no evidence I can point to that you will accept or find persuasive. And this is, I guess, what's inherent in the nature of conspiracy theory, isn't it? That all that needs to be happened is official facts denied and some alternative rumour elevated to the level of fact. And now you have a completely different reality. So how do you preserve relationality mm. in the absence of epistemology? Yeah. I mean, brilliant question. <laughs> um, and I, obviously that's, and that's in a sense part of the, the, the deep frustration of this because you feel like you, you might not ever get anywhere. I guess as I was thinking about this, I, it, did, it did start me wondering whether, whether something like a religious community, it's not just another context in which this debate might play out and then the community has to figure out how to respond. But I wonder if it could also be almost a, a, a test case or a, a way to start practising or trying to recover practices or contexts and capacities for real civic discourse. And and on that point of the no epistemological overlap, I totally agree that if we start at the level of just trying to convince each other with arguments, you know, at this kind of rational or pseudo-rational level, we're not going to get anywhere once position, you know, once people have made up their mind not to believe certain facts or whatever. But that's where, is there a possibility of a conversation that happens at a level below that level of trading competing versions of facts and actually itself comes out of a, a commitment to, to listening, to relationship, to whatever. And I know that sounds, you know, if you put that in the context of the streets of Melbourne, that sounds ridiculous and impossible, and, and it is, I think, in that context. But this is where a religious community which in which people might at least be invited to see themselves as answerable to something which is not just their opinion, but to a kind of level of, of listening for the other, that you might be able to start practising what could that conversation look like that could get beyond the trading of disputed facts. But what do you think is actually said in that conversation? Well, I guess part of what I wonder is the beginning of the, of the hearing what people, how they've come to hold the view that they have or the story that goes with that, like, you know, maybe start to unpack some of the bad experiences of authority that have happened before or, you know, the kind of history of ill health and the fear of putting stuff in their bodies or the, I don't, I don't know. And I, I, I'm really conscious of that again as, um, 
Scott said, not being cheap here as if there's some just, if we all just sat around seeing Kumbaya or figure out, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to be naive about it, but I guess I just think I'm just searching for what, where is a place that, where is a, a conversational space which takes you into a capacity to listen to the person and not just trade ideas that might be a way here. Can I, can I pick up on that? I, I think this is, this is a really productive way of proceeding. And I think as long as these debates are being held through sterile, unresponsive, non-responsive, uh, impersonal media, uh, where whenever one speaks to another, there's always a degree of performance for one's base involved. I think there's nothing good, really, that can, that, that can come of that. Mm. I just want to point out two, two quick things, though, and I'll try to be as quick as I can. Sally McManus, I think, made an absolutely brilliant, one of the most astute observations I've seen anybody make uh, last week when she was kind of thinking her way through whether or not the ACTU would support vaccine mandates or not. She said, you know, one of the things that's led to the current uh, ferment of, of disaffection and uh, non-unanimity or suspicion concerning vaccines, she said, is the temporal gap between uh, vaccines being announced and vaccines being available. If vaccines were announced and more or less available and things just kind of trickled along at a low level and people weren't forced to decide, will I take a vaccine when it becomes available? then we're looking at a very, very different situation. I think there's something incredibly astute about that. It's almost as if a, a mistake, an accident of temporality, the constitutive gap between the announcement of the vaccine, the availability, and, and when it might be available. I actually think there's something more going on there than this kind of deep epistemological division. The well, other thing, by the way... Don't you think it facilitates the epistemological division? I guess that's well, the point, right? Because it, it does. It, it makes it, these it creates concrete. The, it create well, well. It makes it concrete, but it creates the space for it. It creates the opportunity of it, as does, incidentally, this is pointed out to me by a very fine philosophical ethicist named Nicholas Agar, that one of the other problems that Australia has had, that New Zealand, for instance, has not, is that we have a choice of vaccines. If there were simply one vaccine available, and the question is, are you going to get the COVID vaccine or not? <laughs> then again, I think there's a very different conversation that's that's going on it there. Wouldn't have changed this moment though, would it? Because you would still have those who are resistant to or sceptical of or just outright dismissive of the vaccine, no, no matter what it is. So I, I know yep. what you're saying. I think the choice, you know, there's a great minefield to be done on whether or not choice is a bad thing, actually. That, yeah, that absolutely. would be a good show. But choice, I think, played into certain elements of it. It played into the delay in certain amounts of vaccination. That's right. Our appreciation or our response to risk, which just became unhinged at, at a certain point, I think. But it's, I don't think it changes the outcome that we're seeing on the streets of Melbourne today or across Facebook and WhatsApp groups um, all over the country. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite as convinced about that. And the, and the temporality can I... point, can I say, is interesting, but ultimately unavoidable because there is zero way that you can announce a vaccine and have it available at the time of announcement. No, that, that's right. But when that kind of temporal gap takes place in a time that is so deficient on the fundamental virtue of patience. Yes, <laughs> and, where, another... and where everything happens so rapidly. So yeah, that you, yeah. you, positions become ossified very quickly in our, in our yeah. age, I think. 
Now, Sarah, I want to put something back to you, though, as an alternate non-liturgical or non-religious model for how the kinds of relationality uh, might actually take place. Something that, that I found very striking was the form of, I don't know if we can even refer to it as a form of moral deliberation, but it strikes me as a form of moral deliberation. It was taking place in the, in the construction industry in New South Wales. In New South Wales, there was a capacity limit on the number of workers that there could be on site if there were unvaccinated workers present. So it was 50% capacity. Then there was a kind of mutual process of discernment to some extent among workers, to some extent among unions, to some extent in the New South Wales state government, that there was a kind of injustice in this because what it meant is as soon as you have a a capacity limit whenever uh, those who can't demonstrate vaccination are present, then it means that there is an inherent injustice in the fact that there are workers who have received both doses who are nonetheless not able to work because of the capacity limit due to the presence of non-vaccinated workers there. And it's the oh. over, it was the overwhelming feeling that there is a kind of inherent injustice that, okay, I might be not convinced that a vaccine is good for me. And as long as it's about my autonomy and my body, bodily integrity, then there is a kind of consistency or there, there's kind of, there's something about that that, you know, you can hold on to, that you can stick with for a time. But once my decision precipitates a broader experience of injustice on the part of my coworkers, mm. then there's something about that that forces one to a point of moral reconsideration. So if we then shift this then onto church or onto religious gatherings, okay, uh, a church may well be very, very, very reluctant about turning away non-vaccinated parishioners from the door. But it may well be that those same churches then have to live with, they, they adopt as a matter of principle, a limited capacity in gatherings. Mm. And now it's no longer a distressed, spiritually destitute, unvaccinated parishioner being turned away at the door. Now it's a matter of those who have received both doses of the vaccine, not able to, in, to enjoy, to join in the process mm. of in-person corporate worship who are being excluded as the result of this particular accommodation that's been made. So isn't that the very presence of and the kind of negotiation surrounding capacity limits, it seems to me that that becomes a powerful embodiment of forms of mutual responsibility or co-responsibility that can then occasion or precipitate quite a radical, meaningful form, I think, of mutual deliberation where one's instinctive rejection of, okay, I don't want to receive the vaccine, that's then maybe overcome or relativized as a result of the regard, the consideration that one feels that one needs to give for the community that one is a part of, whether these be construction workers or a local religious gathering. Does that, does that move us any closer to something that's worthwhile? I, I think it does, partly because what I think it does, as, as you said, is to raise the question of of um, the impact or the effect that I'm having on the community around me. And that's present always, but it's 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 kind of made real in those, you know, communities that you know that you are a part of. And it kind of, um, yeah, it, it does kind of make you real. You know, it, it, I think the way you put it, it helps to realise that there's a kind of a, 
a commonality here. I mean, you know, I, I can imagine that it could also raise problems of people feel coerced into into having the vaccine, say, because other people in the parish are pissed off with them for, um, you know, for, for the fact that everyone still has to wear a face mask, mask and they can't have morning tea or whatever. So I think it, it still raises com complexities and, and, and needs... But I, I agree that there's something about, well, how do, how do we... How do you make vivid the reality of of a... a of this being a communal issue and not simply a matter of a whole series of individual choices. That voice belongs to Reverend Dr. Sarah Bachelard, who's our guest for this week's edition of The Mindfield. She's the founder and leader of Benedictus Contemplative Church in Canberra, a fellow at the Australian Catholic University. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Sarah, can I um, maybe pick up, I mean, what you say there is really interesting because you're right, but the alternative being a mandate doesn't get rid of the angst. I would have thought, I would have thought that it probably elevates it, which then means if you, uh, yeah. sorry, go on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I agree that the the capacity, you know, if you look at the sort of the Melbourne model or the Sydney model, as, as Scott outlined it earlier, that, you know, one is only vaccinated people can come in and the other is unvaccinated people can be present, but certain restrictions need to be in place. That that seems like it leaves more room for movement to happen, that, that second option. Right. But the alternative would be you don't make any distinction as far as... Um, vaccinated or unvaccinated people are concerned, which is what I presume we will see in places like supermarkets or public mm. transport or just other elements, other parts of life that we regard as so essential that you cannot really discriminate on those grounds without tipping over into sort of more conspicuously authoritarian terrain. I'm interested in that question because there's a threshold here about what are the spheres of life that deserve or are properly regarded as belonging in that essential category. And that's why I think the, the example of religious gatherings is so interesting because in the end it kind of comes down to how important you think they are, right? So for a secular government this is tricky because a secular government has no real way, no, no thick way of articulating the importance of a religious gathering. They become a gathering like more or less any other. And mm. you see this played out in, like there was that pub in the UK, I think it was last year, that sort of um, in a satirical way decided to reg register itself as a church so that it could be open under rules, which of course it never ultimately succeeded in doing. But this was the idea. is There's a double standard here. But of course you know, pubs are closed, but churches can have small gatherings. Well, it's only a double standard if you think that going to the pub and going to the church are equal activities, are equally essential mm. things. And in a secular society, you kind of, it's kind of hard to dispute that in a, in a very straight way. But if you go in these religious communities, the idea that this is so essential, that it might even be more essential than going to the supermarket, would probably be a fairly widespread conviction, wouldn't it? And then you have uh, this question of can you in all good conscience impose any limitation or 
any exclusion, any discrimination on access to something that is considered so fundamental to human existence? I guess the other really take that point and that's <laughs> um, yet on the other side of that potentially if there are no measures taken e- even if the measures are to allow vaccinated pe- unvaccinated people to attend but everyone still has to observe social distancing for example or yeah. um, there's still no public singing which which means that all applies to everyone it's not like there's this little it's not a free for all. of yeah. unvaccinated people in the corner who are shamed, um, but but that that applies as a whole community. Uh, there's still an there is potentially an issue of de facto exclusion of a bunch of vaccinated people who are still so worried about the possible health risk that mm. they self exclude <laughs> um, mm. because of that being allowed. Um, so I myself, yeah, I, I, I don't feel at all comfortable equating, you know, going to a religious gathering of whatever sort with going to the movies as if it's a kind of optional entertainment um, in, in that sense that there is a sense that it's essential or it's in a different kind of category. Um, and there seems to be exclusionary potential Whichever way you go, <laughs> um, either either really perhaps the only well perhaps the best of it is to allow everyone not and there being no proof of vaccine, so it's not kind of obvious who you know who is vaccinated and who isn't, but that everyone agrees to continue to observe the kind of social distancing that we were observing before we had a vaccine and we were still allowed back at church, you know, before there was this latest outbreak. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's a really, really interesting point, that one of the things that a limited, relationally connected community can do is they can engage in a form of local moral reasoning that gives proper regard to the health concerns, to the safety concerns of members of the community, but at the same time resolutely avoids forms of humiliation or let's call it external or internal forms of ostracism. So, for instance, the idea that there might be an unvaccinated corner in a sanctuary mm. where people mm. have to gather. And, and uh, I mean, that, that is unconscionable for anybody with a degree mm. of pastoral or liturgical sensitivity. The idea that there would be those kinds of decisions or those kinds of divisions that are running within a local or relationally connected and intimate community. I mean, that's just, that's unconscionable. But it may well be that in the interests of everyone, in the interest of giving proper regard to all the voices that are involved, collective decisions can in fact be made. So for instance, I know one church in Sydney that because the issue of vaccination versus non-vaccination is still a divisive one, they've made a total decision as a community that they will continue to resist in-person gatherings until they reach a point where they can do oh. so with a degree of peace, of mutual regard, and genuine oh. consensus. So I, I oh. think that that's the kind of 
moral deliberation that can take place when people heed one another. People resist these twin temptations of of uh, over precautionary measures, being trying to be too safe, uh, and at the same time uh, resisting the temptation to impose any form of ostracism or internal division within the community. I think those are the kinds of things that are available, and I'm not sure. I mean, I, I do think there are liturgical or theological religious communities that have particular resources to be able to do that. It's always struck me that one of the most powerful images at the end of, of any gathering of a particular Christian tradition is that moment at the end where the, where the priest drinks the final drops of the wine from the common cup from which everybody else is drunk. There's something in that act about the refusal of contagion the refusal of bodiliness or of the fact that I might be infected by somebody else. There's something, I think, morally, liturgically powerful about that gesture, uh, almost, almost of the same order as the sharing of the bread and the wine itself. But I think there, there certainly are resources that I think religious communities can bring to bear. I, I, I guess I hope, I suspect within functioning democratic communities that there are also resources beyond those religious bounds that can be brought to bear. You've delivered us neatly to a show about the state of democracy, um, which I think we've done roughly 15 times, maybe. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Something like that. It always ends up back there. It does. It does, I'm afraid. Um, Sarah, we're out of time, I'm afraid, which is a real shame because I had at least another three or four hours in me uh, on this because it's just such a deep topic. Thank you very much for helping us plumb that wellspring. I really appreciate your contribution today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always, always so stimulating. Thank you. That's Reverend Dr. Sarah Bachelard, Benedictus Contemplative Church, also um, an honorary fellow at the Australian Catholic University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which uh, sadly is at an end, but we'll be back to deliberate again next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.